Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review podcast. My name is Sam Wise and joining me today is... Tom Jones. Um, and also joining us today is Alistair Cross, TV and radio producer with the BBC and creator of the BBC World Service podcast, Spitfire the People's Plane, which I'm sure a lot of people will have listened to. Most recently, he's also written a new book called The Spitfire Kids. It tells the stories of the very young people in their early 20s, teens and even younger whose lives were so instrumental in the creation of and success of the Supermarine Spitfire. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Alistair. Thanks very much for having me. Um, the book focuses primarily, although not exclusively, on the the young people who were involved in, you know, fl- not only flying the Spitfire, obviously, but developing it, building it, um, transporting it. I mean, even actually you touch on the people who fought against it as well, yeah. um, as, as well as people whose lives were just affected by it in some way across its its lifetime. What was your inspiration for, for writing a book on this topic? Well, the, the starting point was not surprisingly the podcast. So we, we had that commissioned a couple of years ago. And the idea of that was the, the surprise people got from the story of the, of the dispersal. So that was when the factory in Southampton, the supermarine factory in Southampton was bombed in 1940. And that should have been the end of the Spitfire because all the Spitfires were being built in this one place, which was incredibly vulnerable. It was Southampton, right on the coast, 25 minutes flying time from the air bases in France for the Luftwaffe. And very difficult for the RAF to protect it because planes could, German planes could come over. You didn't really know whether they were going up to the Midlands to bomb factories there or uh, to air bases nearby or to Portsmouth to uh, bomb the Royal Navy. So it was, it was really, really hard to protect. But the amazing thing was when it got bombed, they came up with a plan almost instantly to move all the machinery out and disperse production of the Spitfire right around rural southern England. So they took a sort of 60 mile radius and moved into um, car showrooms, uh, old factories and workshops. There was a glove factory, a laundry, um, uh, airfields all over the place. Uh, some you know tiny little places, some larger factories, but within within a year or so, production was right back up to scratch again, right back to where where it was previously. So that was kind of the starting point for the podcast. But as we were researching that, what what really struck me was a lot of the people we were writing scripts about and recording interviews about were fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. You know, they were in their they just left school, they were on their first apprenticeships or their first office jobs. And they, these people were suddenly plunged onto the front line of the greatest war in history. And it must have been absolutely petrifying. And I'd never, in all the things I'd, films I'd seen and all the books I'd read around, around the war and the home front, I never really got that sensation that these people were so young. And, you know, when they should have been sitting exams or flirting and dancing and uh you know getting off with each other they were they were being shot at by you know by german bombers and you know bombs were dropping on them and they were somehow supposed to deal with that you know there wasn't uh there wasn't sort of psychological intervention to help them through that they, they, they were just yeah. expected to sort of have a stiff upper lip and put up with it so that was kind of the starting point i just want to kind of get inside their heads really and just you know how on earth did they feel if you're 15 and you're being bombed out uh, and you're also making the most important weapon of the war at that point how do you feel that's that, that was a major question really mm. and do you think um 
uh, focusing on this, do you think that um, it's uh, not an sort of an untold narrative, um, but it's one certainly less talked about than than um, uh, than other sort of tomes that examine Spitfire in service, um, Battle of Britain, uh, and its service thereafter, right through to the end of its career. Um, do you think the um, the Spitfire Kids, the the book that, that you've written, is is sort of stands out from the crowd a little bit in that respect? And is that what you intended, or is it just that you just wanted these stories told and you thought they they, they weren't told already? I think it, it had to stand out because you know you go in any bookshop, bookshop, even 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 just a general W. H. Smiths or something, you'll see five or six books about this Spitfire. Go into a specialist bookshop and there's hundreds of them. <laughs> um, you know, it's probably you know there's probably more books about the Spitfire than than almost anything else in the war. Um, so it had to stand out. Um, but you know the bulk of them are about the Battle of Britain. They're about these those fighter aces. They're about the excitement of flying and fighting, um, which you know is included in this book as well. But yeah, we've made an effort to kind of find characters that haven't been written about hundreds of times before. Um, but yeah, the, I mean the main thing was just to get that that emotion across. I, th- I think we've particularly with the films, we've got this kind of stiff upper lip idea that everyone was you know either singing roll out the barrel in bomb shelters or they were flying their spitfires with their stiff moustaches and um uh, you know being terribly jolly about it and you know i just thought these people are petrified you know they're mm. genuinely scared i i, I want to uh, that 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 was what i wanted to get across really you know, incredibly brave but also you know you you actually see when we've got quite a lot of unpublished diaries and um in there and also i, I use the bbc archive a lot there's you know there's loads and loads of interviews in the bbc archive and the Imperial War Museum archives that have never been broadcast. And there are interviews with people either at the time or quite soon afterwards, just after the war. And you get kind of raw and varnished emotions from those interviews. Whereas when you talk to those people, you know, in their 70s and 80s, as, as we have done over the last few years, with, you know, as sadly that generation has been sort of dying mm. out, people have, people have rushed to, to do interviews with them. And, and of course, it's great to do that. But, you know, their memories are not necessarily as fresh as they could be and you're not getting that kind of raw experience which which strangely enough you get when you go back to the diaries and the and the recordings from the time was looking at the the archive stuff was there a lot of stuff a lot of material about the sort of everyday people because obviously the focus is on the pilots and the, the people on the on the ground in the RAF was there a lot of material about the factory workers and the people living in Southampton for example and you know the, the the designers and engineers and all that sort of stuff. Not that much. I mean, not not a huge amount. Um, and some of it was sort of slightly suppressed. As a suppress might make it sound a bit more secretive than it was, but um, particularly in Southampton, um, the uh, um, there were reports done at the time um, for for the government about what was happening in Southampton as the city was being bombed, and they completely reflected. The reality, you know, they were, they were done by the Mass Observation Organization. So reporters were going out and interviewing people and asking them how they felt. And people were scared. People wanted to surrender. People wanted to give up. Not, oh, not really? All, not all of them, but, you know, that those voices were coming through. And strangely enough, those, those reports were um, kind of made public in the 1970s. And there was a massive reaction in Southampton. The local newspaper and local politicians took this as a massive slur on the people of Southampton, that they were cowards in some way and 
and that kind of image of everyone being terribly brave was was broken by that and 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 that shocked people in in, in Southampton and and it was and it was kind of hushed up i mean it's still in the archives and you can you can f- find those reports but people didn't want that image of the city to come out so i think I think a lot of people at the time didn't really didn't want to talk about it. You know, they didn't really talk, want to talk about the reality of it. You know, they yeah. didn't mind talking about the plane and how beautiful it was or whatever, but um, they didn't really want to talk about their feelings. Um, and so, so, you know, finding finding the material is tricky. But you know, the, the the diaries and some of the interviews are out there. And when you were researching this, what sort of <clears throat> Favorite parts—the the wrong word—but what surprised you the most, or, or what sort of was the standout themes? You might have touched on it already, talking about that sort of that raw fear, which you know, with the veil of memory, um, people try and sort of hush up. But what was the, the most surprising thing, or, or the surprising things um, that that sort of stood out to you when you were researching this? Um, I, I, I suppose. Some of the most surprising and, and, and more enjoyable bits are actually are, are the the kind of glamour of the nineteen twenties and thirties aviation world, which I, th- I think is 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 not talked about very much. You know, we we tend to go straight from the First World War to the Second World War. But actually, you, you, you devote quite a, a large section of the book, or, or not you know not large necessarily, but a, a a good amount of the book talks about the Schneider Trophy competition, which sort of people know about the S four, S five, S six, and that. But obviously, the context of it perhaps goes a little un, unknown and un, and untalked about. And I found that incredibly interesting. Yeah, there's just so many great characters in that, isn't there? There's um, uh, Lady Lucy Houston, who <laughs> um, was this phenomenal, um, radically anti-communist millionaire, and she was convinced that uh, Ramsay Macdonald, the, the Labour uh, head of Labour, the prime, Labour Prime Minister, was was a communist and was a Russian agent. And she would do anything to get rid of him. And um, as the Schneider Trophy was going on, you know, for people who don't know about it, it was the, it was the competition for the fastest seaplanes in the world. And the Italians and the French and the Americans would compete with British planes to, um, to f- for the trophy. And uh, Britain won it a couple of times. And But then the government said, this was in the middle of the Depression, you know, the government was broke. And it said, you know, we haven't got the money to pay for the next the next entry. And Lady Houston just thought this was a brilliant opportunity to embarrass the government. So she started <laughs> publishing things in all the newspapers about how the, this socialist government was letting down our brave boys and, you know, we were surrendering to the enemy of the future and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and uh, she just and she said, here's £100,000 to pay for RAF pilots to fly these planes. And, you know, the government didn't have much choice. They just had to say, all right, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we Obviously, we want to do this all along. <laughs> and uh, and so the money went in and um, Britain won it again with the um, the S6B and uh, which, you know, the, the technology for that fed very directly into the Spitfire. You know, you can you can look at the look at those seaplanes and you can see the, the outline of the, the Spitfire, albeit with massive uh, kind of boats stuck to the side of it, but uh, very similar. And of of course, R.J. Mitchell was another one of the Spitfire kids. I, it really blew my mind that he became the chief designer at Supermarine at age twenty four. It's incredible, isn't it? These yeah. people they just got on with their lives. <laughs> you know? I think what I was doing at twenty four. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. You know, the war the war was won by people in their teens and twenties, and and um, you know if if um, 
RJ Mitchell hadn't been super cautious and pushed himself into that position and got himself in this company, Supermarine, which was, you know, a very small but kind of forward-thinking company, um, you know, the Spitfire would never have happened, I'm sure. Mm. Talking more generally, um, what sort of message do you hope this book conveys? We're, we're sort of touching on it as, as we're going through, you know, um, in terms of sort of the more untold stories. I particularly like the, the, the glamour of the interwar years. Um yeah, what what sort of message do you hope this conveys compared to as as we said before, you know, the numerous other tomes on on Spitfire, on you know, the aircraft itself. I think it's just to show that the Spitfire and the, you know the broader war effort was a community effort. Um you know, you 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 really got that feeling from the dispersal process and the production moving out because you had this sort of core of workers from Southampton who were experienced aviation workers. But there weren't enough of them to make the planes in Trowbridge and Salisbury and all these other sort of country towns. So, you know, they were recruiting people who were milkmaids and shop assistants and, uh, you know, mostly mostly women um, and training them up into, you know, quite high, highly technical jobs really, really quickly. And, you know, those are the people that get forgotten. You know, we, we all know about R.G. Mitchell and we all know about the pilots, but it's it's those incredibly brave people who you know put themselves on the front line and and learn skills at incredible speed you know those are the people i really want to kind of pay tribute to in the book you, you talk about the women in in uh, uh in particular um one of the things i was discussing with sam um uh, today when we were sort of uh, talking about this was the um the role of the air transport auxiliary and sort of how t- to my mind that's um a very untold story, and 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 some and and some of the things that come through from that are really interesting. Um, do you think it's it's important um, to tell this story? It seems as though um, we're becoming more and more aware of it, whereas perhaps previously it was sort of not really touched upon by um, uh, by the people who wanted to visit this subject. Do you think it's important to tell that story? Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't claim it's un it's untouched because you know these these are very attractive characters in all sorts of ways and mm. their, their their transport auxiliary was predominantly men and nobody ever talks about the men, the men because <laughs> because the women were just so amazing they, um it was a very small group of women very upper class women who um basically persuaded the government that they they needed fly, more flyers to move aircraft around the country from factory to workshop and to squadrons um while the men were you know flying the fighters and the bombers um and because they were so well connected you know they were uh Pauline Gower the head of uh, the women's section of the ATA was a daughter of a very prominent MP um and they were all uh, a couple of them were um gentry and you know they were all very well connected um so they sort of managed to push their way into the war effort that way and once they were in once those first few women were in they were they showed how such how they were such great flyers and that kind of opened the door for more women to come in from you know, slightly more humble backgrounds and actually uh, take over so much of the effort of moving aircraft around the country, which which freed up so many, uh, you know, able-bodied men for, for the mm. fight. But the thing, the thing is, it's, it, it's interesting because you do focus on the role that women played in the Spitfire quite a lot in the book. Um, and, and not just the ATA, but... It, it, the fact that women were being introduced much as they were in in roles that they were never 
ever thought that they would play a part in in the first world war through necessity were being brought into the into things like engineering and design and um very very technical roles that had simply not been open to women before um and and that again feels like another story that you wanted to tell that just hasn't been necessarily touched on before yeah i mean after the first world war the doors sort of closed almost immediately afterwards you know so many women had gone into the factories while the men were in the trenches and almost the minute the war ended both management and trade unions basically said get out you know go back to the kitchen and 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 most of them had to there you know there was very little very little choice but there was a, the, the women's engineering society was set up um for the absolutely explicit purpose of keeping some of those women in employment and keeping the engineering training going um so there's one woman called beatrice schilling who people may have heard of she was she was the woman who invented um what was called miss schilling's orifice which was a <laughs> tiny little washer that stopped spitfires and hurricanes um stalling in in high-speed dives mm. so she's she's one of the few women who has been written about a little but because of the women's engineering society she she as a 16 year old got a got a um a scholarship to go and work on the electrification of devon and became a you know highly skilled engineer so she was by the time the war started she was in a position of authority in an engineering section uh, government engineering section so she was there able to come up with this amazing device that actually saved lots of lives and you know without those very few women in in the interwar years kind of keeping positions open um it, you'd been starting from scratch again um when the second world war started so you know that women's skills and talents would have been completely lost mm. i actually i loved that chapter about beatrice schilling i i actually had heard of i'd certainly heard of mrs schilling's orifice um before there's probably a lot of people have you know reading about the mm. the, the problem with diving you know i don't want to spoil the book obviously but the what a character she was <laughs> in every every, every way she she was fabulous yeah she was this um uh she was obsessed with motorbikes and uh she was one of the first two women to um graduate from manchester university as a as a, a mechanical engineer and uh because they'd never had any women on the course before they, they just weren't used to it and they, and they were going in meeting stokers uh, in boiler rooms who all had their shirts off and had to suddenly put their shirts on because there were women women in the room um and she was the first <laughs> she, i think she was a First woman to get go over a hundred miles. Second woman to go over a hundred miles an hour on a motorbike at the Brooklands uh, racing circuit, and uh, she refused to match. She, she refused to marry her fiance <laughs> until he got uh, over a hundred miles per hour as well. <laughs> he, had to, he had to keep up with her, basically. Fantastic. Um, this might seem like a, a, an odd question. Do you think there's a myth about the Spitfire that maybe it? it has endured for a long time that perhaps is due to be dispelled a little bit perhaps well I, yeah you get this a lot researching anything about spitfire there's a lot of hurricane fans out there who, who <laughs> will immediately tell you there were many more hurricanes in the battle of britain if they hadn't been there we wouldn't have won which is you know undeniably true um uh it's 50-50. It's, it's, it's partly the Spitfire was an amazing aircraft and it was, you know, the best fighter of the early part of the war and was continually developed. So it remained certainly one of the best fighters right through to 1945. Um, 
but there is a glamour to it which was hyped up even at the time um when the government were trying to raise money for for the for the war effort they didn't call it the hurricane fund or the lancaster fund they called it the spitfire fund because they knew Mm. that was the iconic aircraft that everyone knew the shape they'd watched it in the skies of kent fighting the messerschmitts and you know the pilots had been you know portrayed as these very glamorous characters and hollywood you know picked up on it immediately as well you know they were they were it was always those aircraft they wanted to portray in the movies even the ones made during the war so yes it's 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 a bit of both really so obviously you've produced the bbc world service podcast as well the the spitfire the people's plane what what when was you first engaged with the spitfire what's your personal connection with the spitfire i think that's one of those classic sort of kids growing up in the 70s where you saw all the war films on tv they were basically on a loop on the afternoon tv when you were on holiday and mm. uh you know made airfix models and had a I don't think I had. I don't think I actually had a Spitfire above my bed. I had a Messerschmitt, but that was just that was just me being perverse. I think. <laughs> um, and uh, and there was an air show. I, I, I came. Uh, I grew up in Orkney, the Orkney Islands in the north of Scotland, and we had this incredibly small air show. Um, I don't know how we got the planes there. We had the Red Arrows there once. You know, this island of about twenty thousand oh, wow. people. And the Red Arrows. <laughs> Red Arrows came. I think the, the guy that ran the airport had some sort of connections with the with the, the RAF. Um, bosses i think um but once i, I do remember there was a, a pink spitfire came and landed and that just kind of caught my attention so like, what why a pink pink? spitfire well it turns out i mean I, I i think this is true they did that that was a real coloring it was the um some of the um reconnaissance mm. uh, spitfires were painted pink because high up you know at high altitude the pink was a better camouflage than yeah gray or blue um so yeah it was real <laughs> it wasn't just a childhood memory i'd be interested to know i mean I'm, I'm not expecting you to remember just because we obviously as an air show enthusiast people what which spitfire that was because i don't can't remember the last time there was a pink painted one around so i wonder which one that was i don't know this would have been, this would have been about oof definitely sure my age now it's been probably a bit late 70s 78 79 or something so okay well we we've actually we we have an episode of the podcast on scottish air shows um but we've we, the, the orkney islands air show didn't come up i'm afraid so <laughs> i think it only ran two or three years before uh before the money ran out <laughs> mm. so is that an interest that that has carried on or is it something in recent years with the podcast and the book that's that spurred you into the research I mean, I'm always very interested in history, but you know, not. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say specifically the Spitfire has been a mm. a, a, a passion that's carried on for ages. But um, you know, the, as soon as I got a chance to make that pod, make the podcast, I was um, grabbed it with both hands because mm-hmm. I, I knew there were just so many stories that hadn't been told, and uh, and especially ones that hadn't been told to sort of new generation. Um, you know, you know, you guys are really interested in this kind of thing, but you know, I think most people, you know, in their twenties and thirties probably think of it as you know an interest for their parents and grandparents rather than something for them so i was keen to kind of make the young people feel fresh and new and and alive um, mm. well i, I mean I, it, it absolutely does bring i mean there's so many stories in the book that just it, it, it is one of those things and, and as we said you you know we've got countless stories and interviews with pilots and the people who flew them and the people who worked on them and it's all you know i'm all very important but you know as you say this was total war this was 
<laughs> everyone was involved in this war in some way or other. And it, it's stories like, was it Fred and Hazel Hill? Yes, yes, <laughs> Hazel, Hazel's wonderful, yeah. Possibly possibly the youngest person mentioned in the book, I think. She is, yeah, I think she was she was 13 when she enters the, the Spitfire story. Um, so her dad, Fred, was a, um uh, armaments expert and he'd worked in the First World War on machine guns uh, used on flying boats, I think. And he was basically the expert on how many bullets you needed to bring down an aircraft. And, you know, in the First World War, that was a certain number. And by the time we we're getting to the 1930s, there were more guns going on the planes. So everybody thought, that's fine. You can bring down a bomber with, with that number of bullets. But he was a bit suspicious of this because the aircraft were getting faster and faster. You know, the, the fastest bombers were were you know getting not far off 400 miles an hour by this stage you know two or three times faster than the mm. first world war aircraft um so he uh borrowed this cult well borrowed stole this calculating machine <laughs> from the ministry of defense and took it home it was like a very early computer the main thing about it was it could um store numbers so it had a sort of mem- very primitive memory which allowed you to do quite complex calculations and he started plotting out speeds of aircraft, rate of fire, all that sort of thing on, on graph paper. But he didn't have time to do this because he was also involved in uh, designing sites for the new for the new fighters as well. Um, so it all had to be done at home, it all had to be done at weekends. And his daughter, Hazel, who was 13, was really good at maths. Um, it's, uh, I talked to her, her um, one of her children and who, who said, thought she was probably dyslexic actually because she wasn't very good at in- reading and english and things at school mm. but she was an absolute maths whiz so she did lots of the calculations and the calculations that hazel and fred did together basically proved that you were going to need eight machine guns to bring down a bomber uh, going at the, the speed of the time because um, they were building the spitfire and the hurricane designed for with four machine guns um and you know the battle of britain proved really really quickly that four ma- machine guns just would not have touched most of the bombers flying over britain you, you absolutely needed every bullet to count you had to mm. get very close and you had to fire eight machine guns in a you know in a sharp short sharp burst to have any chance of bringing the aircraft down so i mean she is absolutely a hero that has been you know rediscovered just just this year really well so you, you say just this year how do you find how 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 did you research you, you mentioned obviously archival material but stories like that surely aren't written down places well no well that that one actually was a it was a it was a bbc colleague um who is hazel's granddaughter as it turned out oh okay um and she was researching a film about hazel because she she knew you know she knew the story from her parents from her father and uh um one of her uncles had sort of talked to um, hazel about it as a as a an old lady quite a lot so he knew knew a lot so the story basically came from a direct sort of bbc contact which is extremely helpful wow and a, and a story that's that's never been told before. Yeah, I'm sure that and I'm sure there's lots and lots of untold stories out there still to be still to be grasped. In in terms of the the research that you do, um, someone I spoke to before said that what tends to happen is that they they research and then they almost they find enough. Um, not information, but enough inspiration to then sort of think, ah, well, there might be something else that we can do here as well. You know, here, here is loads of other stuff that wouldn't fit into the scope of, of whatever piece we've just done. Um, 
is that your experience? Have you got a load of stuff that sat on your hard drive and you and you might think in the future, yeah, there's a, there's another book here, perhaps a slightly different, uh, a slightly different tale, a slightly different narrative. Yeah, well, I, I was I was really struck by some of the Spitfire Fund stories. Um, you know, most people know about the Spitfire Fund, how uh, you know kids paid their pocket money and there were pub quizzes and there were dances and things to raise mm. money for the, for the war effort. But, you know, going a little deeper into that, which, which we did do in the book, um, you just discover so many interesting stories there. So there was the, the Fellowship of the Bellows, um, <laughs> which, which is a great, great group of um, expats in Argentina who were, I think they were advertising execs and bankers. And they, they loved the glamour of the Spitfire. So they just kind of bought into it and, you know, had cocktail parties and canasta evenings and balls and things to, ra- to raise money. And all the Argentinians thought this was great as well so they piled in and you know they, they between them they raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for the for the british war effort and um and then you dig a little bit deeper in that and you discover that um the belgian congo supplied a lot of spitfires money for a load of spitfires and they had their names of these kind of african villages on the sides <laughs> of the spitfires and you think why, why were they doing that and you realize that you know this was the belgian congo at the time was like the most vicious yeah horrible colony out there you know it made british colonies look look reasonable um and so you know these african laborers were you know almost being used as slave labor to um you know uh, mine in the country and uh, work the fields and stuff and and they they their the, the their labor was paying for these belgian overseers to send a few quid for our spitfires it's, it's just, you just go step by step by step and you just want to know more about each of the people who did this and why they were doing it and yeah i mean you, you sort of enter a heart of darkness kind of kind of um feel, <laughs> down feeling. the rabbit warren of research yeah, exactly <laughs> and you just want to go you want to keep going yeah and and how do you know when to stop then uh <laughs> deadline yeah, when they say eighty thousand words by whatever it was, July the tw- uh, March the twenty third or something, then you you just got to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want to spoil every story in the book, <laughs> so we can give people oh, a reason to buy it. But <laughs> were there any stories that you didn't put in the book that that you came across that either didn't fit the narrative or you didn't have space for that that you found particularly interesting and memorable that that you might want to share? I don't think there was, to be honest. I, I, I think <laughs> by the enough. end, I, I think by the end, I, I got virtually everything in um, that I'd, I'd, I'd researched. So um, okay, they're all that. They're What's... all perfect. All that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can, you know, the whole siege of Malta is fascinating. There's a, you know, a little section of that because one of our one of our pilots, Jeffrey Wellham, um, who'd fought right through the Battle of Britain, he was the youngest youngest Spitfire pilot to survive the Battle of Britain. Um, and he'd been, you know, flying missions constantly, and he got sent out to Malta to defend the island, and had a massive breakdown there. Um, yeah, his illness in in that mm. in Malta is, is it's quite vivid, almost, isn't it? It's not not very pleasant reading, almost in in the way that he he sort of describes it as well. Yeah, yeah, because you know, not not everyone who writes about their experiences as a great writer, you know, you 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 have to work on what they've left you. But Jeffrey Wellham was an astonishingly good writer, mm. uh, and his, mm. his book First Light is is mm. certainly the best 
book about a pilot's experience in the in the Second World War, and his writing is just so vivid. You know, you can you can feel yourself right there in the cockpit, and you can feel yourself right there as he has, has his breakdown as well. So, you know, he was really brave to kind of tell those stories about you know his mental health issues, you know, at, at, at the at the peak of war. So, so you know, something like the Siege of Malta. There's so many stories that come out of that um you could you know you could write a whole book on and uh, max hastings has got one out now so i'm very glad i didn't mm. write too much about it. um <laughs> so i'm sure so i'm sure he's done it better than i could have done um but yeah each 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 bit of the war throws you up lots of different angles you can take but you know a lot of them take you away from the spitfire which you know you've got spitfire on the front of the cover you've got to kind of stick to it as much yeah. as possible <laughs> well i i it's, it was interesting obviously reading your section on Jeffrey Wellham and and you talk about how he's one of the most open about how he was scared. You know, he was a scared kid, and he says he mm. he had the most defining moment of his life before he was even twenty two. And I I remember I'm assuming obviously you've seen the film Spitfire that came out a few years ago, and I just remember one of the most incredible parts of that was he was it was his narration of what it was like to shoot down someone, and one of the most incredible things that I think that show did was it it, a film was openly talked about the spitfire as a a war machine as a killing machine and not as necessarily in those same sort of savior of the country um you know very talk about in very you know florid terms and very romanticized (laughs) religious terms romanticized is the word i'm looking for yes romanticized and it openly talked as a killing machine and i just remember it was his words of describing shooting down another person overlaid over gun cam, gun, yeah, gun camera footage that actually changed it, it it completely strips that sort of mist of romanticism away and makes you remember that these these were for the right reasons and it was it was a war but they were these were killers these were young people who have to kill as young people do in every war but it's yeah yeah it's, it's funny it's funny how the air war has is always romanticized and it, it, these are the sort of knights of, of the air rather than you know the guys down on the ground shooting each other in blood and guts and you know it's it's absurd you know you get to the stage where uh you know i know luftwaffe pilots are sort of held up as being not really nazis or, or you know they're somehow somehow different from other german fighters of the second world war and you know it's preposterous that you know these on both sides, they were they were out to out to kill people, just as the, the infantry were. Well, that's all part of the clean Wehrmacht thing, isn't it? Which is a pretty awful yeah. revisionist <laughs> stuff. And... It is. It is dreadful. Yes. Do you have a favourite story in the book that you would like to share? I, I, I find the unsurprisingly the, the American pilots are kind of quite glamorous and interesting, um, and the, that that whole um, process that kind of. Unsurprisingly, the, the, the American pilots are very glamorous and interesting because these were people who didn't have to join the war. Um, this was mm. you know, before the America, before, before Pearl Harbor. They came over and joined the RAF. And in fact, there was actually a, a legal requirement that they not jo- join the war. The American government was very influenced by anti-war um, groups at the time and uh, America First, which is a kind of familiar sounding name, but they were... <laughs> um, uh, uh, they were uh, very much pressurizing the government not to join the war. So the government passed this law saying that anybody who joined a foreign power's army would lose their citizenship. So it was a really risky thing to do. 
But there was this whole kind of class of often kind of the people who were sort of barnstormers, flew in flying circuses, crop dusters, guys, young guys just out for adventure, really. And they saw what was happening in Europe and they were just desperate to join. And um, there was this guy called Charles Sweeney, who was a, an American sort of socialite uh, living in Mayfair. Uh, he was married to the Duchess of Argyll, or the future Duchess of Argyll, I should say. She wasn't the Duchess of Argyll at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was a gol- golf pro who I think taught, taught uh, royalty how to play golf. And he just knew everybody. But he basically paid his own money to set up this sort of... Um, route through America to Canada where um, pilots could come and join and if they were experienced pilots they were stuck straight on a boat over across the Atlantic which you know was very dangerous at the time crossing the Atlantic and um, were funneled first of all into the French Air Force at the start of the war and as soon as the French lost they all you know decamped to to the UK and uh, joined joined the RAF and it's just such a incredible set of people you know there's one guy who was a, a Cambridge graduate who'd won Olympic gold medals. There was um, a guy called Indian Jim Moore who I, I read about and thought he wasn't really Native American, was he? And it turns out he was. He's the only, <laughs> as far as I know, the only Native American ever to have joined the RAF. Um, <laughs> and then there were other guys. There's a chancer called Jack Kennerly who um, got thrown out of the RAF almost as soon as he arrived for just dodgy behaviour on the ground and in the air. Um, oh dear. But when he got back home, he sort of set himself up as this kind of Battle of Britain hero and got recruited <laughs> by Hollywood to um, be a consultant on a Ronald Reagan war film. Um, <laughs> you know, there's just, just so many of these brilliant characters and, and kind of tragic stories as well. As um, and One of those Americans, Art Donahue, was one of the first to come over and he flew Spitfires in the Battle of Britain, which very few Americans did, and wrote a mm. book about it at, at, just almost immediately after the Battle of Britain. But as you're reading it, you just know things aren't going to end well for him because uh, <laughs> he, he writes to his parents back home in the States and says, my life may not be long, but it will be wide. <laughs> Which is just such a wow. tearjerker of a line, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, he was he was shot down in 42, I think, and uh, yeah. didn't make it home. Very haunting. Yeah. Hauntingly prophetic, perhaps. The book is called Spit The, the Spitfire Kids. Um, and it's it is out now, isn't it? It's it been is, published yeah, now, yeah. um, and presumably it's available from all good booksellers, all good bookshops, and uh, yeah, go to, go to an indie one if you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I think perhaps all that remains to be said is thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, and th- thanks for such fabulous questions. It's been really nice to it's, talk about it, it. It's been fascinating. I mean, and and it's so so. Tom and I have both read the book and it, it is there are some brilliant brilliant stories in there stuff that as we've said on in the episode just you won't have heard before stuff that doesn't get told in the traditional narrative of the Spitfire um, it really is a, a very a very good read and well worth it thank you so much it's really nice to hear that from you know people who, who know the history and know what they're talking about well <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there who would disagree that I know what, what I'm talking about with Spitfires but Sam's going to get a lot of Sam's going to get a lot of hate mail now, isn't he? <laughs> um, but but boy, uh, thank you very much. That's, that's kind of you to say. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on, and uh, uh, to those listening, we'll see you in another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>